Today, the title is Ultimate Victory. I pray this is encouraging to you and challenging at the same time. So let me pray for us. God, I ask you guide us and lead us as we study now. I have your spirit, God, open up our eyes and our minds and our hearts uh, to be able to receive and believe and, and understand what it is you have in front of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know there's many things that, uh, that you have missed uh, because of the kind of the coronavirus situation, uh, the kind of lock-in and things that we've been having. Uh, one of the things I missed the most um, has, been, uh, has been sports. I, I love sports. I miss watching sports. I miss watching uh, my Dodgers. I do hope that that, uh, that comes around this summer at some point. Um, I do know that the things like the NFL draft definitely did not count for me as in terms of watching competition and enjoying that. Some of you may have, but was not for me. I enjoyed just the thrill of competition, right? Seeing teams, individuals come out victorious. Um, and even if you don't love sports, like Pastor Eddie, for example, um, <laughs> I guess he does love, what does he love? Foot, football, I think is what he enjoys. But um, that's another another conversation. Um, he's uh, you especially love uh, you love other kinds of victories, right? You enjoy uh, personal victories, maybe uh, be it home improvement projects. Some of you have been victorious in accomplishing your home improvement projects during this time. Um, sometimes overcoming an unreasonable fear, overcoming um, an addiction, uh, reaching some personal goal, right? We we enjoy reaching those and being victorious over those things. As the in the immortal words of a uh, Charlie Sheen, we all enjoy winning, right, is what we enjoy. And I'm not sure if he, he won anything with his warlock brain and tiger blood, but again, that's another story. Uh, we also love, uh, we love victory in battle, right? Some of you, uh, some of you have fought bravely in battles and wars uh, for our country, for freedom, and, and have been a part of that. And you know what that's like firsthand. We, we thank you for that. And uh, with Memorial Day coming up here pretty soon. And I've been watching since this quarantine time, uh, watching a lot of World War II films. Um, I've been reading a lot about Winston Churchill uh, in his biography, uh, biography by Andrew Roberts. And one of the things about Churchill specifically was he had a way with words and vocabulary where he would embolden people to victory. Uh, I just have been reading a part where France was, uh, was taken over um, by Germany and Germany's kind of spreading its way across Europe, its next kind of target is the British Isles. And, and during that time, uh, Winston turned to his people and he said the following, one of his most famous speeches. He said, I would, I would say to the house, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with our might, all our might, and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Victory. Speeches like that motivate us to victory, right? You've maybe witnessed or watched uh, different films that involve uh, moving victorious speeches, right? William Wallace uh, in Braveheart. If you're Justin, you would you would enjoy Maximus in Gladiator, uh, Aragon in Lord of the Rings, Coach Boone in Remember the Titans, and even Coach Bombay in the Mighty Ducks. Yes, uh, we we love these speeches, right? We love these speeches because. Because they're people standing up against the odds, right? They're people standing sometimes in the face of death. People being willing to sacrifice everything, all that they have, put it all on the line to be victorious, 
We as human beings, we long for victory. We may define victory in different ways, but we all desire it. Today, in our passage, we look at the ultimate victory won for us by Jesus, our Savior who said the most moving speech in three words from the cross, the most ultimate victory, which it is finished, right, was the great victory speech. Paul will tell us in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 about four key victories that Jesus has won for us uh, as his people. We have victory over vanity, victory over injustice, victory over death, and victory over sin. Those are the four things we'll look at this morning. Number one, victory over vanity. starts in verse 50 telling us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And he'll repeat those words quite often. Paul has taught us already, we saw last week, about our future resurrected bodies. There's coming a day that we will get our bodies back because Jesus got his body back. There will be an eternity lived with resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth with the resurrected Christ. That's our future, right? But, but for all of this to take place, Paul is going to say things have to change. you notice that word also repeated a lot in this passage. Uh, we have to be changed as a people. Right? We have to go through change um, to experience this, to become our future selves. The problem is that our, our present selves, the problem with that is that our present selves are perishable, Paul says. We have a shelf life, as it were. We will expire. And for human beings, the greatest desire is to have victory over that which is perishable. Right? We try to overcome our perishable nature by trying to be faster or stronger or smarter or richer or more popular or more beautiful than other people. We're, we're trying to put away the perishable part. This is why things like uh, good things like work, uh, physical fitness, uh, beauty, possessions, education, even people themselves can become idols and gods in our country. Right? We, we, wanna, we look, to, look to them to rescue us from our perishable nature and make us, as it were, feel uh, imperishable. They become a religion, a means of self-salvation to deliver us from this perishable nature. Some years ago, uh, after the death of uh, Michael Jackson, uh, people came forward with stories about his obsession with being good enough or having enough fame, having enough people like him. And I was in LA during that time and there was article after article written during that, during that series. One writer said, quote, he relied desperately, speaking of Michael, on fame to protect him from further pain. In the end, he says, the, that overriding need for celebrity was at the root of his tragedy. Another writer said, Michael stopped making eye contact with people and he vowed to do whatever it took to make people love him again. Michael's need was so great that no amount of love seemed to ever be enough. Michael tried to escape the fact he was perishable with fame and attention and celebrity. Another person like this, uh, Madonna, said the following. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. She, like Michael, tried to escape the fact that she was perishable by persistence, work ethic, and drive. Both Michael Jackson and Madonna are people writ large upon our society. They reflect the drive 
to escape being perishable. They mirror what most people want out of life, right? They want to be better. They want to be victorious. They will do whatever it takes to escape the fact that they are perishable. And the reason I say we have victory over vanity is because that's what this is. All of this pursuit, all of this work is vain because it means nothing in the face of death. It means nothing. The Webster Dictionary defines vanity as excessive pride in or admiration of one's own appearance or achievement, something that is empty and valueless. In the face of death, all of our work, uh, be it uh, to be better, to appear imperishable, is definitely that. It's empty and valueless because death is going to wipe it all away. This is why people apart from Christ are ultimately afraid of death, more so than, the, than maybe the fear of the unknown or the fear of the pain, is the fear of the inevitable proof that my life is just perishable, that everything I've worked for is going to go away. You, say, you may say, look, I, I don't fear death, but, but you do. Because everything you do is in slavery to the fear of death. In other words, all the vanity, all the attempts to be imperishable, the, the pointless competition to be better than others is really because you're enslaved to the fear of death. You're trying to push away the reality that you're perishable. You want to convince yourself that you matter, that you count for something. But if death is coming, my friends, then it, it counts for nothing. But in the gospel, we find victory over vanity. The gospel pacifies, as it were, the fear of death. For those who follow Jesus, death is actually turned on its head. And since this life is, is not our identity, since this life and what we can do and accomplish is not our identity, that means death can't take that away, right? Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus entered our world, and since we are flesh and blood, he took on flesh and blood. And his mission, it says here, was twofold. One was to break the power of the evil tyrant who held sway over death. And number two was to rescue those who were enslaved by the fear of death. So because Jesus went through death and resurrected, that means he, he as it were, punched a hole in the back of death. And one day will walk us through to an imperishable life. The world wants an imperishable life, but that, that only comes through Jesus who conquered death for us. Right? So that causes us not to fear that we will lose out because of death, because our life, our real life, ultimate life, is on the other side of the grave. We become imperishable through the gospel. Stephen, um, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, a pastor in Boston, he said this, The ultimate victory is already possessed by the believer, so he no longer needs to live an anxiety-ridden life in an attempt to win life, for it has already been won. He can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says, what are the areas of our lives that we're trying to win? What keeps us up at night? Money, relationships, health? We don't have to win. We are free to lose. This, is, this probably scares most people, right? What will motivate, what will my motivation be? The world runs on laws that promise but can't deliver on the defeat of death. So once we leave the realm of law, we get nervous. But paradoxically, it is this very freedom that allows the believer to work diligently, to work well, and to work with hope. The gospel gives us victory over vanity. We get imperishability through the gospel. Number two, 
victory over injustice. Back at verse 50, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to talk about a, a trumpet, um, and he talks about uh, uh, the dead being raised imperishable. And all of this is the language of battle as, as well as the language of victory. The last trumpet is a battle cry, as it were, of when Jesus will return. And like in a blink of an eye, uh, he'll be victorious and we will be changed. And notice we must go through this change so that we can inherit what? The kingdom of God. Now that's an interesting phrase, the, the kingdom of God. So that's something that Paul has brought up often in 1 Corinthians. I think it's brought up here specifically and on purpose. The kingdom of God is the idea of the administration of God or maybe the government um, of God. And what is that? That's the, the future rule of Christ in the millennial kingdom as well as on new earth. What does that mean? It's, that means that, that all wrongs will be made right in this new kingdom. That means there'll be no more poverty, no more loss of jobs, no more suffering, no more injustice. Jesus will rule as King Jesus on this earth because he must be victorious over all wrong, all brokenness, and all the pain that has been caused by sin. This means, currently, that Jesus cares about our world, right? He's not going to throw it away like a piece of trash, to, to throw up his hands, as it were, and, and just be done with this earth, to, to write it off as a loss and say, I'll just count my losses and move on, would be to lose. And my friends, Jesus does not lose. He will win, right? He will return one day to right all wrongs and rule this earth in justice the way it was meant to be. Listen to how Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians. In his first chapter of that book, starting in verse 5, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. There's our phrase again. For which you're also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. But in light of that, that future, that promise, humanity kind of balks uh, at that idea. Uh, matter of fact, the, in Psalm chapter 2, we find that the nations are raging against God. They are mocking God of his idea that he's going to come back and he's going to somehow right all wrongs and, and bring about justice. And I love God's response. Psalm 2, 6 says, He who sits in the heavens, he laughs at them. He holds them in derision. It's like God is shaking his head with laughter, basically going like, Oh, look at that little guy. You know, look, look at him. He, isn't he cute? Look at him raging, right? Humanity has this uh, called the, the scrappy-doo syndrome, right? We're like, let me at him, let me at him. Like, no, you're not going to do anything if you let him, if you get at God, right? Uh, I'm reminded of um, the film A Night at the Museum, where Larry walks over to the exhibit with um, Octavius and Jedediah, and uh, Jedediah wants to fight, you know? And so Larry just kind of picks them both up by their jackets, you know? And it's kind of, that's when Jedediah's like, I don't like being manhandled, right? He's kind of picking them up like, really, guys? You're really going to fight? Like, you're really going to do something? And that's what God does, is it where he picks up the nations by the back of the jacket and says, do you really want to go? Because this is not going to turn out well for you. This is not going to turn out well. One of the most uh, famous Roman emperors was a guy named Julian. He was around AD 360, and he, he persecuted Christians like most Roman emperors did. And he brought in a, a former friend of his, Ag Agaton, um, who was a Christian. 
And he brought him out to his court to kind of just make fun of him. And, uh, and Julian said to him, to his friend, he said, Agaton, how is your carpenter of Nazareth? Is he finding work these days? <laughs> Agaton smiled and answered. He said, he is perhaps taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build a coffin for your empire. <laughs> that was pretty bold. Less than two years later, on June 26, 8363, uh, Julian lay dying with a Persian arrow in his chest, and his scribe and other people around him uh, record his last words, and he said this, he said, Vesisti Galilea, and that was, what that meant was, you have conquered, O Galilean, right? Three years, uh, less than three years later. Jesus will return to reign on this earth, and he will squash injustice. It will happen. You say, how does the gospel give us victory over injustice. Well, this hope of King Jesus and the kingdom of God ruling on earth means that there will be no more getting the raw end of the deal. It means there will be no more getting ripped off. There will be no more false accusations, no more lawsuits, no more getting taken advantage of, no more taking advantage of the poor and the marginalized, no more poverty, no more racism, no more babies being slaughtered with abortions. Like This will be done away with. There's no more oppression, no more harassment, and no more corruption. And that seems like all we know these days is corruption. And this truth gives us power now to endure those things. Listen to how Peter puts it. First Peter 2, speaking of Jesus, says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to trust himself to him, who judges justly. Justice, judge, judgment is coming, and Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The cross tells us that justice is coming, right? That's how serious God takes sin, how serious God takes injustice. He's willing to die for it. All the injustice done to you will be paid for by, by the person or people or by Jesus himself, by their faith in him. Without the cross, my friends, injustice would be impossible to deal with. Think about this. Christianity is the only faith that says that, the, that God was the victim of injustice. This means we can deal with a little injustice ourselves now, right? Uh, we, we don't need to defend ourselves in this moment. Some of you feel the current government maybe is overstepping its, you know, its, 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 with its stay-at-home orders. And maybe they are, right? Some are protesting. People like in Michigan surrounding the mayor's office with guns, which is quite ridiculous, to be honest with you. Christ entrusted himself to the real judge and calls us to do the same thing, to trust him that he will make all things right. And you will face injustice. And you will have to endure things that are wrong. And maybe things you see as wrong, maybe they really are wrong, right? But the gospel tells us we can endure those things. We're the, Of all the people in the world, we can endure those things because we can entrust ourselves, like Jesus did, to him who judges justly. The point is that Jesus did not retaliate, right? He didn't indulge in retaliation. Instead, he entrusted himself to a future um, of retaliation by God, almost a delayed vindication. Literally, the phrase is Jesus handed over to God every dimension of his life. He handed it over. Some will argue that the, the belief in this kind of idea of divine vengeance in these verses we've read, some will say that that, that that idea is what causes people to be violent, to act out now uh, what God will do in the future, almost like a, like a son acts out uh, the sins of his father kind of thing. He models and sees that. And, and, and there was actually a, a, an important writer, um, Murslov Mer Voth, I think as I say his name. I don't know if the, uh, the closed caption is going to get that one right on your screen. But he was a, uh, he was a Croatian theologian at Yale, 
um, who, uh, who wrestled with the thought of God's vengeance being possibly dangerous. Uh, maybe, maybe it rationalizes brutality and violence. But this wasn't something he just sat around in, a, in an office and kind of theorized about. It was something he wrestled with in the face of his nation at the time being mauled by outlaw Serbian forces. And he wrote about it in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He said this, quote, It's easy for us, sitting in our pleasant living rooms in the West, to come up with high-minded theories of nonviolence. Our villages have not been burned. Our brothers have, have not had their throats slit. Our sisters have not been assaulted and raped. Wolf goes on to talk about in this book uh, how the idea of God who, a God who doesn't take justice seriously is actually what causes violence in our world. Um, if God's not going to do it, then we'll have to do it ourselves, is kind of his argument. But he writes about how the gospel in Christ actually frees us to face injustice and await God's final justice to come in the future, the future kingdom of God to come. Here's what he says. The certainty, he says, of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the, for, for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. So when a confidence in God's fierce opposition to all human justice enters our hearts, we have a reason to forsake our savage impulses and love our enemies. If we don't have a just God to trust in, we have no logical reason not to become violent ourselves. We should oppose all injustice because God does. God has scheduled on the human calendar a day of final intervention when he will repay all the dirty deals and broken promises and backstabbings of history with a justice clear enough to satisfy no one less than himself. Right? So that, that's where we get victory over injustice. It's coming in the future. And currently, that empowers us now to suffer well, <laughs> to be under maybe things of injustice and wrongs that are around us and not have to retaliate, but entrust ourselves because we have a Savior who did just that for us. Number three, victory over death. Verse, down to verse 54 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It's a fantastic phrase we're going to look at. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 25, verse 8. It's a promise that there's coming a day when Jesus will literally swallow up death for all time. Our future resurrection will serve to vanquish death. I mean, think about it. This means that death won't just be unable to further harm as if it's, um, as if it's an invading army that's been rendered defeated right, in a battle and allowed to return to its home. So it, it lost, it's now able to march back to its home and continue living. That's not how this verse is talking about. Instead, death will be, as it were, pushed back from the lines, back to where it came from, and then completely destroyed where it came from. Right? That's kind of the idea. Um, it will be completely undone. All the apparent victories and the things that death has done um, to the humanity will be completely undone in the future resurrection. Notice uh, the, the phrases here. Paul says death will be swallowed up. He doesn't say that death will be thrown away. Right? Um, when you have a, a slice of lemon meringue pie, uh, you can do two things with it. Right? You can throw it in the trash, which is a crime against humanity, by the way, um, or you can swallow it, right? And that's a proper phrase to me. You can ask my family. When I eat, I literally inhale, or the pastors actually, if the ships in salsa, I literally inhale the entire thing. I don't even need to chew, right? And that's the idea. The point is that death will be removed, unable to be seen again. Let me give you another illustration of this. This is, um, I've told you about my, you've seen probably before, my dog, Dodger. Uh, the word swallow is actually used 
for a large animal devouring a very small, a very small one, like a mouse being devoured by a larger predator. And the idea is that once it's swallowed up, no trace of its existence is left. Um, during our, our time at home, uh, my dog has, uh, we found out, loves watching sharks on TV. He'll sit there for hours and watch Animal Planet with sharks. Uh, he loves sharks. I don't think he understands what sharks are, but uh, we always tell him that he will be, um, the Dodger, you'll be a sneaky snack, is our phrase in our house. He'll, you'll be a sneaky snack for a, for a great white. It'll be a, a great white victory, and he won't have to try very hard. or just swallow him completely up without much effort. And that's really the picture of the word, that Jesus is going to swallow up death. There won't be even a trace of it left, and all of that has been done about it will be undone by the resurrection. This is significant, right? This is important, because death casts a dark shadow over us all. It comes after all of us. It breaks the hearts of those who are left in its wake. And it's an evil tyrant. Death is not a friend. Death is not natural. Death is not part of the, as it were, the circle of life. It's not something to be overcome either with positive thinking. You say, who thinks that? Well, there are people who think that. I read an article <laughs> a few weeks ago on a guy, an actor named Val Kilmer. You may not remember him. Uh, Val Kilmer as in Batman, Doc Holliday, and Iceman. Remember, remember any of those or not? But he said, an article shocked me, he doesn't believe in death. Why? He's a Christian scientist. Christian scientists are like grape nuts. I don't know if you know what grape nuts are. Remember that cereal. It's not grapes. And it's not nuts. It's not Christian. It's not scientific, right? That's what it is. But anyway, he, he had this idea that, uh, that because death is an illusion, it can be overcome with positive thinking, and it doesn't have to fear death. He said he goes into his metaphys metaphysical forest and thinks happy thoughts to defeat death. That's not going to work either, right? Death must be defeated, not just thought about and dismissed. And it must not just be defeated. It must not just be given a truce or a ceasefire. And it must not even just stop in its tracks. That's not ultimate victory. Death must be undone, along with all of its damage. It must be swallowed here, as Paul says. And this is what's going to happen at the resurrection. Our bodies will not just be put back together again. As we saw last week, our bodies will be extraordinary. They'll be able to do more and be better than they ever originally were. This is why Paul goes on to talk about the gospel here and the victory of it. Verse 55, O death, where, where is your victory? <laughs> death, where, where is your, saint, uh, your sting? This is a, a song of almost mockery of death. It's from Hosea 13, verse 14. It's almost like the Queen's song, We Are the Champions, kind of song, sung over, uh, over death, right? When the resurrection occurs, when the gospel story is completed, death will have no victory, not a trace of a single win. And Paul says it, it won't even have a sting. And actually, though, you could almost translate the word there, maybe better translated, a, a stinger. Right? Death won't even have a stinger left. And the word's used of a, a scorpion stinger back in that time. We could think of it as a bee sting or something. It's not the, the bite or the sting that kills you. It's the poison from the stinger. And Paul says death won't have its stinger anymore, which is sin. They won't have it. Remember death, make sure you understand death and let's define it. Death is in essence separation. That's what in the Bible, the biblical word death means. And so, which is why the Bible talks about two kinds of death, actually. If you read all the way through the Bible and get to Revelation, you'll see there's two different kinds of death. The first death is one that we all experience. And that's separation, right? Death, separation from the body, from the soul. We see that when we go to a funeral. This is, there's also, though, a second death. Um, for those who are apart from Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus, don't commit their lives to Christ, they will be futurely resurrected as well. They will get their bodies back 
only to be separated again, not just put body back together with soul, but separated forever from the presence of God in a real place called hell. So for the Christian, though, death won't have the stinger of a second death. Because of Jesus, the stinger of death has been removed, and we will never be separated, never experience death in our connection to Jesus. We'll always be connected. This is because death, as it were, lost its stinger in Jesus, like a bee leaves its stinger in its victim, right? Jesus bore the whole of death's sting in order that there would be no sting left for us. That's why passages like Romans 8, Paul would write these beautiful passages about how nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ because the sting of death is gone. The stinger has been removed. We'll never be separated from the presence of God, even through physical death. We'll still never be separated from him. Number four, lastly, victory over sin. Verse 56 said the sting, says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So as we said, the stinger of death is sin. And Paul now tells us that that poison in that stinger uh, was the law. In other words, the poison spread, maybe it's the best way to put it, spread through the law. The law make the, made the poison uh, active, as it were. The law of God in itself is not evil, it's not wrong, it's not bad, but it does serve to condemn us because we, we can't live up to it. And our lack of keeping it, the Bible defines that as sin, missing the mark. And sin brings about death, separation from God, who is holy. And so the law serves to make us aware of sin and death, right? That's what it serves as. Uh, Paul would make it, would say it this way in Romans 7, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. He says, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It means he, he recognized his death. He recognized he was apart from Christ. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. This all means is that ultimately, guys, our greatest enemy in all of this is sin. It's what the law reveals to us. It's what the source of our death is. It's reason why we are, apart from Christ, we're separated from God and why ultimately we'll be separated from God eternally apart from Christ. Sin has brought a curse on us, a curse of separation, and it brought death just as Jesus promised Adam and Eve. Remember the day, they eat, they, the day that they eat, they will surely die, he said. And that's what happened. They were separated from the presence of God. So here we are as, as human beings, on death row, as it were, awaiting the, the ultimate execution of separation from God forever, the second death, because of our sin. So how does the gospel give us victory over sin? Paul celebrates it in verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he do it? It's because Jesus drank that cup of poison, as it were. Jesus drank the cup of wrath. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when he was asking if there's any way possible, let this what? this cup passed from me, that was the cup of wrath deserved for us that Jesus literally went and drank the entire thing. So there's not a drop left for you and I to drink. For those who put faith in him, he drank every bit of it, right? He absorbed the sting of death. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, right? He, he took it on himself. He took on the curse that we brought on ourselves. He took it on himself. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse, the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. He bore the curse for us. In his mercy, he reversed the curse, right? He, he crushed and undid sin, just like he undid death. He will do it, undo sin forever in all of its ramifications. Romans 5, 
Paul says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's speaking of Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, meaning declared right, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So point being, as Paul has brought up in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, this comparison between Adam, our representative, and Christ. You think about the comparison, right? Adam's work brought condemnation. Jesus' work brought freedom. Adam wavered, as it were, in the Garden of, of Eden. Jesus resolved in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam fell, right? Jesus triumphed. Adam brought a curse upon us in creation. Jesus released us from, from that very curse and, cre and from creation. That's what has been done by Adam has been undone by Jesus. So, so how do we get to experience this, you ask? How, how do we become part of that? How do we become ultimately united to God in a way that will never be separated, that even death can't take it away and sin can't take us away? How do we experience that? Now, again, I told you before that the King Jesus is coming back and there will be justice to be done, meted out. And there will be a second death, experience eternal separation from God for those who don't trust in him. So what do we do? Do we seek to be good people? Do we seek to maybe go to church, right? Give some money away, serve the poor, say our prayers, read our Bibles, and just do all of this and hope that it's enough. Right? Some of you are hoping that those things will work for you. And the answer actually is that none of those are going to work. None of them. If you do all of them, they won't work. As a matter of fact, you, you can't do anything actually to earn God's favor and to earn a place with him without being eternally separated from him. You say, well, how is that? Look back at verse 50 in the passage. And there's a very important word used twice. It says that we have to do what we have to, we, we inherit the kingdom of God. You see that up in verse 50? We inherit it. You don't do anything to inherit, okay? Uh, it is something given to you at the death of someone else. And that someone else in our passage here is Jesus. Because of his death, and our, we'll talk about it here in a second, our belief in that we inherit this kingdom of God. I know this runs counterintuitive to everything in life, right? We work and we get paid, right? We do things and we get something in return, but that's not the way it works with God. Ever since the Tower of Babel, people have been trying to build their own personal towers up to God, whether they realize it or not. But if you remember in that story way back in Genesis, that God had to come down. Why? Because we couldn't go to him. We couldn't reach him, and he knew that. That's why this whole story of Christmas and Jesus being born, that's why all that took place, is because we couldn't get to him, so he had to come to us. And so God took on human flesh. Right? He, he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died a death we should have died to save us. This is why I tell you over and over again, the Bible is not about you and what you need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. You can't build your way up to him. He has to come down. Look at how uh, the very beginning of the Gospel of John, how the writer of John uh, said this. He said, he came to his own, speaking of Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all did, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Aren't you glad that the Gospel of John didn't end in chapter 1, verse 11? <laughs> right? Though people did not receive him, though people chose to ignore him, 
though people shielded their eyes from him, there will be some who receive him. You say, what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to welcome, to take hold of, to grasp. It means to trust. And for the gospel to truly set in, to truly get it, you have to see Jesus as your, your Savior, your Lord, and your treasure. What does that mean? You have to know that he died for you. You have to want to follow him and desire him above all things. Back in the Reformation, the Reformers broke up faith and defined it in three little parts, components. The first one was called notitia, which is knowledge, facts. You have to know the facts. Jesus died for my sin. Okay. A census. I have to assent to that. I believe those facts. I, I commit to those facts. And the last one was called fiducia, which was trust. I'm going to entrust myself and live my life in, in light of those facts. I'm going to give myself over. That's what true saving faith is in the Bible. One of the best ways to illustrate this, maybe you've heard this before. Back in the 19th century, there was a, a, a tightrope walker. Um, he was known as the greatest one in the world named Charles Blondin. And on June 30th, 1859, he became the first man in history to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. We've never been there before. I've been there before, and I can imagine walking across something like that. But over 25,000 people gathered to watch him walk on this tightrope some 1,100 feet above the water. Um, and he worked without a safety net and with no uh, safety harness of any kind, which is shocking. Again, the, the slightest slip would have, would have resulted in his death. In the days that followed, the story goes that he actually walked across the falls many times, kind of went back and forth, did it for multiple crowds, kind of back and forth. Once it says he walked across with stilts on, once he carried his manager across as a piggyback ride, that's a bold manager, and once he pushed a wheelbarrow across, loaded with, with rocks all the way across. On another occasion, as he was kind of going across, he, he brought this wheelbarrow over and the crowd was all cheering. They were all excited about what he was doing. And he saw one man particularly who was real clapping and real excited about this. And he, he, said, he said, sir, do you think I could safely carry you across in this wheelbarrow? And the guy said, well, of course I do. And Bolden said, well, get in. <laughs> and the guy said, uh, never mind. No, I don't think you can do that. I'm not going to do it. He refused. And that really gives us a good description or definition of, of saving faith, right? It's one thing to believe that a man can carry you across. It's quite another to believe also that he could carry you across. It's a whole other ballgame to jump in the wheelbarrow, as it were, and be pushed across and trust him, right? It's a whole different thing. But until you trust Jesus, until you get all in, you'll perish, and that's what we get. Some, some did, as John says in this gospel, John, some did trust Jesus. And when they did, they became children of God, right? They became children of God. And it wasn't by blood, he says, meaning it wasn't by your birth or your heritage or how you grew up. It wasn't a flesh, meaning it wasn't something you did. It wasn't of the will of man, right? It says, but it was of God. Sounds like Ephesians 2 to me, right? My, my friends, despite what you may have done, despite how far you have run, the fact that you are watching this video right now means that God is at work in your soul. And he is drawing you, he's calling you to saving faith. He's calling you to get in, as it were. So how do we respond? For those who have gotten in, for those who have trusted Jesus, who are watching this right now, what, what do we do? How does this all change our life now? And that's how Paul ends this. Look down at the very last verse in our passage, verse 58. Be steadfast in light of this. Therefore, in light of all of this I've taught you, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word abounding is the idea of exceeding the requirement, overflowing, overdoing it. It's the same word used in Ephesians 1 to describe how God lavished his grace on us. He overdid it. He flooded us with grace. 
And the point is that Jesus went above and beyond for us, and in light of that, we should go above and beyond for him. We should overdo it, as it were. We should be steady. We should be unmoved. We should follow Jesus boldly. We should let nothing stand in our way. Not injury, not sickness, not COVID-19, not cancer, not even death itself. Because life, real life, is coming. We don't need to be afraid of losing out. We don't need to be afraid of injustice. We don't need to be afraid of death or the, the sting of sin anymore. We can live knowing our decisions to follow Christ now, face trials with boldness, or things that are not in vain. They're not pointless. C.S. Lewis, as you know, my favorite writers, he died over 60 years ago. He actually died the same day as uh, JFK did. I mean, the same day he was assassinated. And during his lifetime, people um, were living what he calls the threat of the atomic age. The atomic bomb had been invented, and people were scared it was going to be dropped on any country, any nation, any time. And, uh, and he, called, he wrote an article, actually, called uh, Living in an Atomic Age to challenge Christians during that time to keep striving, keep following Jesus, keep living life as Jesus has given it to you, despite the fear of an atomic bomb. And I'm going to include this as kind of our ending here is a video that someone redid. And then what they did is they just simply went in and they crossed out atomic and substituted coronavirus. And it's powerful. It's a 60, you know, this is a good 40, probably 40 years ago, 60 years ago, sorry, that he wrote this. And, and I want you to think about as we watch the video how God has called us to live boldly and to live, live in light of him and knowing that our labor is not in vain. May you remain steadfast. May you remain immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in Him is not in vain. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the coronavirus. How are we to live with the coronavirus? I am tempted to reply, why? as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of motor accidents. Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the virus. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which was already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all. But a certainty, the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by a disease, let that disease, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, not huddled together like frightened sheep. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds.